If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. Well, it seems that the tempo on the actual battlefield has slowed a bit in recent days compared to the hectic pace of the last few weeks. And instead, the focus of violence has shifted to Ukraine's cities as Russia switched, at least for the time being, to a strategy of bombarding them with missiles and drones in an attempt to destroy vital infrastructure and demoralize the population. Yeah, various cities, Kiev, Kharkiv, Dnipro, Mykolaiv, and also cities further to the west, like Zitomir, have all been hit. Mercifully, Ukraine's existing air defenses have been able to knock down some of the incoming rocketry, but civilian areas have suffered, and civilians, of course, are dying. The government is saying that 30% of the country's power stations have been taken out, and this, of course, is just as winter sets in. We'll be discussing all of that. But in this episode, we're also taking a longer view of the war. So our guest this week, uh, who we'll be talking to after the break, is Professor Matthias Strun, who's a visiting professor of military studies at the University of Buckingham. He's also chief analyst at the Center for Historical Analysis and Conflict Research, a bit of a mouthful that, which is the British Army's strategic think tank. And if that wasn't enough, he's also a reserve lieutenant colonel in the German army. He's going to be telling us all about the German response to the crisis and also what steps NATO is likely to take as the war progresses. But let's start off with these missile and drone attacks. Do you think this is a viable long-term strategy, Saul? Uh, no, I don't think it's viable in the long term for two reasons. Um, first of all, very strong indications that Russia is running out of long-range precision missiles. We're hearing that they're tapping up their solid ally, Iran, to provide new longer-range missiles. How accurate they'll be, we'll see. But also, of course, uh, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, these drone attacks and hundreds, if not thousands, have come from also supplied by Iran. They are much less effective, of course, than the uh, cruise missiles. Uh, they are a terror weapon, as you say, Patrick, and terror tends to produce the opposite effect. It's actually making the Ukrainians, I suspect, more steadfast. Having said all of that, there is a material effect on the infrastructure. And these are worrying signs as we head into the winter. The possibility of combating the drones has been um, discussed in Washington this week, apparently, between our defense secretary, Ben Wallace, and of course, his American counterpart. And they seem to have agreed to be supplying more anti-drone kit, I mean, effectively, uh, air defense systems. Uh, and also, we're getting indications from NATO that they're doing the same thing. So the effectiveness of these weapons, I suspect, will fall away as more kit arrives in Ukraine. Yeah, there does seem to be a definite connect between uh, the appointment of Suvorikin and this new strategy, so-called General Armageddon. He's aided and abetted now, of course, by Iranian Revolutionary Guards who turned up uh, 
to uh, train them in the use of the drone, the shahid. Shahid means uh, martyr in Persian and indeed in Arabic. It, they actually look quite like the old doodlebugs, the V1s that started raining down on London the week after D-Day. I think that's quite an interesting historical parallel because, of course, this was the V1. The V stands for Geltungswaffe, which means vengeance, vengeance weapon. So this is this is not really a kind of serious attempt to uh, change the, the strategic picture. It's basically a, an act of frustration, I would say. And of course, you know, as you rightly say, that this had uh, it was a bit. Um, it was kind of depressing to think that the war's kind of coming to a close, and yet we're still being bombarded. This is the view of London as I'm talking about, but it certainly didn't do anything to to actually damage their resolve. I think it's going to be pretty tough for the civilians in Ukraine. I think mean, that's another statement. This winter, this is where humanitarian aid comes in. I don't know what the picture is on on energy, whether there's any way of actually uh, importing, sending energy in to make up uh, for those losses. But uh, you know, from what we hear from the morale of the Ukrainian people, uh, they are braced for this and they will get through it. There's another interesting uh, comment piece on Sorovakin from Hamish de Breton-Gordon, who was the former chief of Britain's biological and chemical warfare capability. Now, he saw Sorovakin up close in Syria and said, we've got very good reason to be concerned. Sorovakin is apparently uh, an expert in what de Breton-Gordon calls unconventional warfare. Uh, and we can see where this is leading, of course. In other words, attacks on uh, civilians and also civilian infrastructure. He did exactly the same thing in Syria. He targeted hospitals. He targeted anything, frankly, uh, that civilians need to survive. More than a thousand medics were killed, according to De Breton Gordon. But even more alarming than that, Sorovakin was very happy to use chemical weapons. And this is what De Breton Gordon's particularly concerned about. Either Russia, not Russia using tactical nuclear battlefield weapons, but either uh, using a nuclear plant like at Zaporizhia, for example, uh, and making sure that there's some kind of leak from there that's going to cause chaos, or the actual use of chemical weapons. And and his response to all of this, and we've been discussing it the last few weeks, of course, Patrick, is uh, he writes, the West must prepare and demonstrate the ability to execute an overwhelming and devastating response if it looks like Putin is planning to use devastating unconventional weapons. Yeah, well, that's something that we'll be hearing about from uh, Matthias later on. It's the pictures actually kind of shifting the whole time, isn't it? I and mean, we hear different signals coming out of Washington uh, about what this you know, overwhelming conventional response in the event of the Russians going nuclear is likely to be. But we haven't got any detail. And um, Professor Strom will be, will be giving us a few more thoughts, very interesting thoughts on that later on. Now, actually, on the battlefield itself, uh, the Russians appear to be pushing back a wee bit. Uh, there was a limited ground attack up in the north in the Kharkiv Oblast a few days ago, just inside the Ukrainian border. But it seems to me to be more uh, of a gesture, really, than a, than a serious counterattack. And uh, apparently the, the, it was actually repelled. Uh, I just don't think they've really got the wherewithal at the moment, especially as this new mobilisation is uh, ongoing and troops are, are only just arriving in theatre and then, of course, you know, under-resourced and under-trained. But having said that, we normally hear, if there are Ukrainian gains, they're very keen to trumpet them. Uh, and we don't, on the propaganda front, we don't have much in the way of reporting from the front line which suggests that the, the impetus uh, that the Ukrainians certainly had a few weeks back 
uh, is necessarily being retained. Uh, in, instead, we're hearing something very interesting uh, from President Zelensky. He's urging the army to capture more prisoners, presumably as opposed to killing them. And this is in order to get more Ukrainians back in prisoner swaps. Kiev and Moscow have just carried out the largest prisoner exchange to date. Now, that says to me, Saul, that Ukrainian is really beginning to feel the imbalance in manpower. Yeah, potentially. And of course, there is, you know, it's it's very real. Um, on the subject of Russian gains and the use of these new recruits that, you know, effectively are being sent to Ukraine at the point of a gun, there's an interesting brief by a Western official, presumably intelligence of some type, who suggests that, and this is a direct quote, thousands of these new recruits are already casualties, killed and wounded. So it seems if this report is accurate, this uh, brief is accurate, that they are actually sending them into the front line and they are dying. Now, on the other hand, Patrick, you talk about uh, Ukrainian gains and you're quite right. It's been relatively quiet over the last week, but there is just a tiny hint that something might be up. Well, two hints, actually. First of all, there's a news blackout in the south of Ukraine, which might indicate a, a push is about to start. And on the other hand, the Russian commander, we've already uh, name-checked him, Sorovikin, General Armageddon, has acknowledged that they might need to move civilians out of Kherson. And this, you know, Kiev is basically suggesting this is preparing the ground for withdrawal of Russian troops from Kherson as well. Well, that would be a real game-changer, wouldn't it? Because that would give them uh, that territory right up to the Dnipro River, uh, which is a, you know a huge territorial and strategic gain. So uh, it looks like uh, th- there may be something brewing there. Um, now the Belarus uh, situation, they're still making sort of um, belligerent noises, or Lukashenko is, and they're definitely providing territory and airspace to support these uh, missile and, and drone attacks. But I think that the uh, the picture remains the same in terms of the likelihood of Russian troops actually mounting an attack from the north, really going back to square one where they were in February. Now, eight months ago, remember, this war uh, is going to be a long war. But I think that the the chances of that happening, or indeed of Lukashenko putting his own men uh, directly uh, into battle, is very unlikely. He's just doing what he's been doing all along, which is trying to demonstrate his support to Putin uh, rather than offer... Uh, any, any uh, serious uh, military aid. Uh, he's a strange man, Lukashenko. I mean, he looks like a brute. He is a brute. But his thinking is uh, pretty unpleasant as well. He's an admirer of Hitler. Uh, he's an anti-Semite. Uh, and this seems to me to be very strange indeed, given that Hitler's troops killed about 30% of the Belarusian population of the Second World War, destroyed three quarters of the towns and villages. But there are some very strange mentalities at work in this conflict. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's very unlikely an attack is going to come from uh, Belarus. It has a relatively small army, 50,000 strong almost certainly there would be protests at home. And of course, Russia, one of the reasons Russia is so closely allied with Belarus is because uh, Russian troops have have been used in the past to help quell uh, domestic unrest. But if you think about it from a strategic point of view, what they're really doing is threatening something in the north in the hope I suspect that it'll draw Ukrainian troops away from the real business, which is in the east and the south. And that is probably happening to a certain extent, because uh, I'm sure that the Ukrainians can't take the chance that there's going to be another advance on Kiev. But whether there really is likely to be, I, like you, doubt it. Yeah. If Lukashenko did do that and there were protests, I don't think Putin would be in any position to actually offer him any help to put them down. He needs all the internal repression 
resources he's got to put this so-called partial mobilization into place. We're hearing reports that there's widespread anger among ethnic groups who feel with a lot of justification that they're bearing the brunt of all this, while the rich Russians and, and Russian Russians, if you like, are being spared. There was an interesting incident a few days back at um, in Belgorod Oblast uh, at a training camp there. 11 trainee soldiers were killed, um, apparently by two ethnically Tajik Russian citizens who had been forcibly mobilized. This seems to be an indication of, of real deep anger there. Yeah, last bit of uh, interesting news this week. More evidence is emerging that the cutting of the Nord Stream pipelines, which we mentioned in, a, in an earlier episode in the Baltic, uh, was the result of Russian sabotage. Um, they've got underwater pictures now that clearly show the uh, pipelines have been cut by some type of explosion, uh, and they are pretty convinced Russia's involved. Russia, of course, is denying this as it would and saying, why would we cut our own pipelines? But an equally valid question to ask is, why would any of the West be cutting those pipelines too? But it seems to be pretty clear that Russia is involved in all of this. Okay, well, in part two, we'll be talking to Professor Matthias Strohn. We'll be back very soon. Welcome back. Well, I've known Matthias Strawn for many years when we taught together at the University of Buckingham, and he's in a great position to tell us something about a vital aspect of the war, the attitude of Germany, uh, because he is, of course, currently a reserve colonel in the Bundeswehr, the German army. Now, Germany not so long ago fought a titanic war against Russia, uh, and therefore we might be able to get some kind of insight from Matthias about the current conflict. As a German military historian and soldier, he brings a unique perspective. He's also an expert on NATO and has been thinking deeply about where it is positioned as the war deepens. This is what he told us. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine earlier this year, the Chancellor of Germany has committed to spending more than 100 billion euros to modernize and improve Germany's armed forces. Can you tell us a little bit about the current capability of the Bundeswehr and whether this sum, in your view, is enough? Well, that in itself is, is, is a huge question. And well, at the moment, the German military on the whole um, is completely underfunded. It's been cashing in on the, the peace dividend, the so-called peace dividend for well over 20 years now. And the German military, whether it's the army, the air force or the navy, is basically lacking in pretty much everything. When you look at how these 100 billion are going to be spent, you can see that this is not going to be enough to be enough to get the uh, the German armed forces to where they need to be in order to be a first rate military player. So it's really a big, big ask. And there are very big, still ongoing discussions in the German military and also in the political circles uh, about how this money is going to be spent and about how much more money is going to be needed. Can you tell us a little bit about why Germany's armed forces have been under-resourced for so long? I mean, you talked, of course, about the peace dividend. We we, we get that. The, you know, the, the fall of the Iron Curtain, frankly, has made a big difference. But Germany's armed forces were pretty effective up to that point. So why has it fallen off so badly? Well, I think there are two reasons for this. The first one is, you've already mentioned the, uh, the end of the Cold War. So suddenly, for the first time, as uh, people in Germany 
started saying um, in the early 1990s, Germany for the first time in its history has been surrounded by friends, not enemies. So that you might say took the pressure off a little bit. Um, the second thing that you find is that up to the end of the Cold War, uh, both in West Germany and in East Germany, there was a general understanding as to why you needed to have these armies, why you needed to have these large forces. So this whole question about deterrence. Once this all goes away, um, the raison d'etre for armed forces basically disappeared. And there was a big discussion in uh, Germany for about 10, 15 years um, as to why the Germans actually needed armed forces. And this to a degree then went away again when you start into in going into place like uh, like like the Balkans and in particular of course um, Afghanistan which um, remained an extremely unpopular deployment for the Germans and the armed forces and I think there is an, another reason a more underlying reason to that perhaps a psychological reason so the Germans having lost two world wars um, you might say to put it quite flippantly are done with fighting there is not an awful lot of appetite in Germany in German society for anything to do with the military. You could uh, see that in the numbers of people who were not joining the army when we still had conscription and decided to do social service instead. You could actually see it in... Um, and some of the professional soldiers and military personnel refusing to go on operations because they say, well, we, we didn't sign up for this one. So we signed up for a completely different scenario like deterrence, but not actual fighting, in particular, if you take the German armed forces out of areas, they call it outside of NATO territory. I mean, one of the big changes we've noticed in the British armed forces in recent years, particularly the British Army, is that people go into it with a you know a proper kind of sense of career. The brightest and the best, in many cases, have gone into the British armed forces, certainly more so than you might have suggested in historical terms. So I, I'm guessing the, almost the opposite of that has happened in Germany, and, and it's not considered to be a viable career opportunity. Well, of course, I have to be slightly careful. I wear the German uniform myself every now and then to say that, well, they're all very well, stupid people joining the military. But <laughs> but no, um, in, in a nutshell, I think you're absolutely right. So wearing a German uniform is not seen anymore as something that you aspire to, something that you want to do. It doesn't have the, the social status that it used to have. Um, and for many people, quite often these days, it's just seen as a very stable job because you join the army and um, if you do it right and if you do it well, you've got a full career that takes you all the way up to retirement. And uh, this, I think, for many people at the moment is more important than the underlying special needs and special reasons as to why you should or why you could join the army, um, like, for example, in the British case. To give you one example, perhaps, um, it's quite striking when you compare the numbers of people going into the army. In the British army, you can normally see that the numbers of people wanting to join the army, they go up when the army's in operations and um, at war. In the German case, it's the exact opposite. Uh, it's very interesting. I mean, we, we, we can see that Germany realises politically uh, and, of course, effectively in a military sense, it, 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 things are changing now in Europe. Europe's becoming a much uh, a scarier place. The, the possibility of conflict edging ever closer to Germany is there. And therefore, this 100 billion that it's prepared to spend. And yet still, since the start of the conflict, or at least since the start of uh, of Russia's invasion this year, Germany and France uh, in particular have been pretty reluctant and certainly more reluctant than the US and the UK to provide Ukraine with the type of weapons that it needs to defend itself. Um, why do you think this is, given that, you know, the uh, professed spend on military is changing? Why is there still this caution in relation to Russia? I think it's the... Um 
the underlying psychological issue that I mentioned earlier. So everything to do with, with war, getting killed in war, killing people, is something that German society still shies away from. And that is very, very clear. And you can see that in the in the wider discussions. And of course, the politicians, they know that, they understand that. Um, and that's why they're not particularly gung-ho when it comes to uh, supporting the Ukrainians. Having said that, when you look at the actual list, which is available online of what Germany has supplied by now, it's quite an impressive list, including uh, military capabilities. They don't really um, like to boast too much about it for internal reasons, you might say. And of course, there are other, other things that Germans have done, and that is also very much a German tradition since since 1945, and that is humanitarian aid. So Germany has now taken on, I would have to check the, the latest figures, but I think we're looking at about a million refugees from the Ukraine. So there's a lot of that going on. But yes, there is a general reluctance to do with anything military in German society. Uh, can I just uh, ask a question there, uh, Matthias, about the air defence systems, which are meant to be coming from the US and from Germany? They're obviously very sorely needed now. Can you tell us why there was this delay and what capacity they would actually deliver when they're deployed and how long that's likely to take? Well, they've already sent uh, some anti-air capability, and that is the so-called Gepard. So it's the what we would call a tank, an anti-aircraft anti tank. Um, but again, you can see there are an awful lot of internal issues and problems. So the German armed forces don't use them anymore. So the anti-air cap badge, which used to exist, was uh, phased out um, about 15 years ago. Um, so that completely disappeared. And this is a problem that all Western armies have at the moment. So having gone through operations like Afghanistan, where you really didn't have to think about control of the air because it was just a given. So all armies took um, took their eyes off that one a little bit. And so, so the Germans sent some of the old, basically outdated um, Gepard tanks to, to the Ukraine. The interesting thing, of course, and here again, you can see how all these things, how complicated all these things are. So the Germans didn't have enough ammunition to send with it. So they had to find uh, someone to produce the ammunition for them. The ammunition for the Gepard um, was produced even in the old days in Switzerland. Switzerland, of course, has a very, very strict rule of neutrality. So initially, the Germans could send the uh, anti-aircraft, what we call, to, as I said, tanks, um, but they couldn't send enough ammunition. So they sent about 20, I think, with about 50,000 rounds of ammunition, which, of course, is not enough at all. They're now looking at, um, at, at other options, but all this is still proving quite difficult. Matthias, as Russia suffers more setbacks on the battlefield, the situation generally gets more dangerous. Uh, the big danger, of course, is that Putin might resort to using a tactical nuclear weapon. If he does, or at least it looks like he's about to, what are NATO's options? Well, first of all, of course, as far as we know, and as far as I can take from uh, the open source material, there is no move on the Russian side to do that, which is the good news, I would say. Um, should the Russians decide to use tactical nuclear weapons, I personally would argue that the the options that uh, NATO or the West, whoever that might be, could use would be fairly limited. And you just have to look at what uh, President Macron, the French president, said only a few days ago. And he said even if the uh, the Russians were to use tactical nuclear weapons, the French would not retaliate. They would not use their own their own nuclear weapons uh, in order to retaliate. And he said the reason why that's very clear because the the French doctrine, and that is pretty much uh, applicable to, to all nuclear powers, say that you should only use nuclear weapons 
if and when your own state, your own territory is is threatened. And this would not be really uh, be the case if uh, the Russians decide to drop some sort of tactical nuclear weapon on uh, on, on the Ukraine. So it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a tricky one. Uh, in effect, then, you're confirming what we've heard from various other sources and various other commentators, which is that the only viable option, um, either as a preemptive strike or in literally in retaliation, is to use conventional uh, weapons, which, of course, would discourage potentially a, a nuclear escalation. Do we have the sort of uh, conventional capability that uh, Russia should be concerned about? Well, there are conventional capabilities, of course there are. The problem is, if you decide to use all of these, and if you, for example, want to prevent a tactical nuclear strike from happening, you would have to make sure that you hit all the launch pads, that you that you manage to knock out the entire tactical nuclear weapon base um, of the Russian army. And that would be extremely, extremely difficult. And of course, the, uh, the other, perhaps slightly bigger and wider question here is, even if we know that this is going to happen, would the West be willing to use the um, uh, the normal capabilities, conventional capabilities, because that's a very, very clear escalation. That would mean that the West slash NATO, again, however you want to define this, um, would be at war with Russia. And uh, that would completely change um, uh, the entire game. So it sounds as if you're saying that it's a very uh, distant prospect that this conventional uh, response, which which has been posited before, would take place and that the, I suppose there's another risk, of course, that uh, if you do take out significant infrastructure uh, and, and severely weaken Russian capability, they've then got no choice but to go to the next stage, which is nuclear. Oh, that is a possibility. And of course, the moment you start engaging quite overtly on Russian soil and on Russian territory. The Russians can then turn around and say, well, of course, now our own territory is being threatened. Um, It's a completely and fundamentally different story if the Russians were to take, for example, the Baltic states as as NATO territory. That, of course, again, would be complete change. There are, of course, other things that the West and NATO could be doing. And this is all to do with the grey zone of activity. And you can see that all Western militaries uh, and governments are working far more in this area. So just below the threshold of proper war, which is basically what the West have said now for a number of, of years, what the Russians have been doing very, very effectively. And so there is something that can be done in that respect. Um, you could, for example, use just give you one example, um, cyber. Uh, there's more that could be done in this particular area. And everyone's quite surprised that uh, the Russians haven't done more in this area, actually, but that they try to uh, decide to go very conventional right from right from the beginning of this particular operation. So there are areas and aspects that you can look at, but a conventional military operation against Russia is, I would argue, at least at the moment, uh, unlikely. Do you think there is this capacity in this grey area, as you put it, that could actually significantly increase Ukraine's ability to win the war? Well, it would probably uh, rather decrease Russia's ability to win or at least fight the stalemate, because if you go for this grey zone activity, you would do it covertly in the enemy's territory. Uh, so indirectly, yes, you increase uh, the Ukraine's chance of winning the, this particular conflict. You got any examples of, of what sort of thing uh, you have in mind? 
Um, you can, for example, as I said, SIAM is at the moment, of course, is the core one. Um, you can uh, support dissident groups. Um, you can uh, take out infrastructure. There's an awful lot um, of, of what goes on. And a lot of it is um, because it is, is covert. You might perhaps say it's not, um, it's not open, uh, openly visible, but you're using some sort sometimes you might even uh, go to some sort of partisan action like the, uh, the Russians themselves or the Soviets used to conduct during World War II. And this is or stuff this isn't new. It just seems that we in the West have lost sight of this a little bit. There is, for example, a very interesting piece by um, uh, George F. Kennan uh, just after the Second World War, in which he talks about exactly this, and he calls it political warfare. And uh, he says that there are two nations who are extremely good at conducting this political warfare. And he says it's the Soviets, because they've read their Clausewitz. And then he says it's the British Empire. He says the way to run the British Empire was by conducting um, as I said, he calls it political warfare. And he said, the Americans are extremely bad at this. It seems that for uh, some reasons, we in the West have forgotten about all this, but uh, the Russians uh, are doing slightly better. Okay, final question, Matthias. However we get there, that is the end game to this conflict, do you think it's important for the future security of Europe that Putin suffers a demonstrable defeat in this war? And by that, of course, I mean the loss of all the territory he's taken from Ukraine not just since the beginning of this year, but including Crimea? Well, probably a simple answer to that, at least to the loss of Turkey, would be yes, because what you can argue about is um, in ever shape, in any shape or form you want, and you can make this argument that the Crimea is traditionally Russian. Um, all these arguments that we have heard, well, the bottom line is that's where you've got the Ukraine uh, as a country with established borders. And uh, so if you violate these, well, that's uh, that basically says it all, doesn't it? The problem that you find, and this is of course something that you now find in the in the debates in the West and also in Europe, is um, how much damage do you want? How much harm do you want to do to Russia? Because let's not forget that, well, at the end of the day, Russia as a country is still going to be there, and uh, history has shown that unless you can really, really inflict an absolutely crushing defeat, like for example on Germany um, after the Second World War. Unless you're not willing to do this or not able to do this, you will have to make some sort of arrangement with this country because the country and its people are still going to be there once this conflict is over and um, and once Putin is gone. So it's a bit like Stalin saying after the end of the Second World War, well, the Hitlers come and go, but Germany as a country will always remain. Well, that was... Fascinating. It was interesting to hear that despite all the money that's been thrown at the problem, the German armed forces are still a long way from being a first class military power. I thought he was also very frank about uh, the way that uh, going into the army in Germany is, is seen as really a kind of, you know, very low grade aspiration. And that socially speaking, you know, given the contrast with the um, 20th century, being a, a soldier, an officer, particularly put you very much at the pinnacle of the social scale. That is very far from being the case now. Yeah, I was very uh, honest of Matthias, wasn't it? I mean, he is still a serving, well, a reserve soldier in the Bundeswehr, as we said. And uh, he's also on the reserve list of military attaches. So he's very much attached to the German establishment. But he's very clear eyed about this, too. I suppose you could say, having lived in the UK for a long time uh, and married to a Spaniard, I think, that he has a much more sort of pan-European NATO view about all of this. Uh, but he is aware of, of what's going on with the German army. Um, he makes the point that the air defences are, are going in soon, but they don't sound like they're going to make a huge difference in the next few days or even weeks, which is slightly depressing. 
a bit more encouraging for me was to hear his scepticism that Russia really is seriously considering the use of tactical nuclear weapons. We've already mentioned on the program the possibility that there are alternatives with uh, General Sorovkin. But um, it's always there, isn't it? It's always there in the background, Patrick. Uh, and his response as to what we can do about it if they do was also slightly concerning. Yeah. But going back to the air defences, uh, very telling, I think, that uh, how short-termist a lot of military thinking is. So the fact that in the wars we fought so far, in the, or, or that the West have fought so far in the 21st century, uh, these asymmetric wars, as they're called, against people, uh, enemies who have um, very limited resources, they're fighting in flip-flops and carrying Kalashnikovs and RPGs, and we've got all the 21st century tech kit you could wish for that we rather took our eye off the ball and thought we would never actually have to uh, face uh, conventional uh, air power in the way that you know cold war thinking had posited it but uh, there we are um, but then coming into how, what does nato actually do this gray zone he was talking about absolutely fascinating this is something i'm sure has occurred to everyone is that do we have a superiority in when it comes to cyber warfare one would have thought that with the you know huge advantages that the american high-tech industries have uh, that we would actually be in a very good position to uh, strike decisive blows in cyberspace that the russians would find it very hard to counter yeah and that final question i asked you know what ultimately is an ideal scenario to prevent this sort of thing happening again um and his response was interesting from a German, of course. You know, the in the Second World War, Germany was utterly crushed. It was it understood its defeat, and it's been a better place. Let's not kid ourselves, Patrick. Since then, as a result of that, I mean, you could argue it's been too pacifist as a as a result of the experience of the Second World War. But I don't think he really seriously considers that a viable option with Russia. We are going to have to live with Russia in the long term, and the idea of crushing it in the way that, of course, we heard from. Uh, Colonel Kazan last last week probably is not an option. Therefore, you've got to find some kind of solution at some point. Yeah, as long as we're not existentially threatened, I don't really foresee any scenario where we would actually take a view, the kind of Patton view, if you like, and General Patton's view in 1945, that, okay, we've beaten the Germans, now it's now time to go on and uh, destroy the communists. It, looking back, it wasn't such a terrible idea, perhaps. But um, it didn't happen, and it's not going to happen in these circumstances. Needless to say, we've been getting a few questions from listeners coming through on Twitter, one or two to my personal email. So we're going to try and be a bit more organized about this. And we've actually set up a Battleground Ukraine email account. It is battlegroundukraine at gmail.com. That is battlegroundukraine, all one word, at gmail.com. And if you have any questions, please send them through to that email account and we'll try and respond to them in future episodes. Well, uh, that's all we've got time for. Next week, we're going to be talking to Sir Max Hastings. Uh, now, we've banded the word legendary about a bit with our guests, and I would say with some justification. Well, Max is a legend's legend. I was with him in the Falklands and served, if that's the right word, under him when he was uh, editor of The Telegraph. He's just written a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis exactly 60 years ago. Who would have thought that the shadow of a nuclear conflict would ever darken the global political landscape again? But here we are. And Max will be sharing his thoughts with us. Do join us then. Goodbye. Goodbye.